Welcome back to the Maluli Asset Podcast. This is your host, Casey Maluli, and this is episode 374. And this week, I'm joined again by Tom and Brendan, and we get into our thought process and some things we consider when we're constructing portfolios for clients. So there's a, a lot of good takeaways in this short episode, so we hope you enjoy I listened to the Morningstar podcast that Jeff Patak does with uh, Christina Benz. Mm -hmm. And they had uh, Meb Faber. I've seen that. I've seen that on Twitter. I actually retweeted it last night because it was so good. Yeah. We should share that. Yeah. Uh, You know, a lot of what we do aligns with the stuff, the work that he does. Hmm. And uh, I just think he has a lot of good things to say and things that we need to be mindful of as we're, you know, building portfolios for clients. It's it's interesting drawing that line between like textbook and just like the theory behind the investing and then what we need to do for people. All the research would say, oh, like, yeah, this this should work. Like, this is the right thing to do. But then it doesn't really translate. I think the the problem is recognizing when there's a change in trend. And so... You know, several times during the podcast, Meb mentioned how we had a decade of zero returns from the S&P from 2000 through 2009. But the problem with that is you don't know until you get to 2009 what the results look like going back over the next 10 years. Because we had years like 2003, gangbusters, market went up 20 or 25%. Uh, But then we also had years like uh, 2001, 2002, back to back, down 20% years. And then we had 2008, you know, which was, you know, a train wreck for a lot of people. And then, you know, probably the best year in the entire decade, 2009, was right after everybody got scared senseless. Well, but also, so you have that decade where people started to do things yeah. and everybody wanted to do trend following after 2000 to 2010 because it was good then and it's and right. now nobody wants to do it anymore yeah. at best it can be a component of the portfolio so like how do you how do you do trend following to find out when the trend is to use trend following i was just going to say do that. It. you can't do <laughs> so it so what you're it's saying impossible. is we need a need timing to... indicator for the timing indicator yeah. We need doesn't the, work. What's the sports book from Back to the Future? Yeah, you know that's what we need. Yeah. So, so I'm not. I'm just saying. Like, I think that you can build them into a portfolio, but like they hedge. You you can hedge different things different ways. Trend following isn't perfect, and I think people who like it think that it is perfect. And I think a better hedge is just owning less of the risky stuff and having some bonds, which was the only way to hedge the let let's talk about like the last two 20% drawdowns meaning the end of 2018 and the one from 2020 the only way to hedge those was having high quality short term bonds right because everything happened too fast there were no trend following signals that got you out ahead of those they do not exist thanks for bringing that up because that, that's something else that i think gets glossed over or doesn't really hasn't even been mentioned but we mentioned this on a podcast Casey it seems to me that over the years, as some kind of crisis hits the market, a pandemic, banking crisis, whatever, we have Congress and the Fed stepping in and moving the goalposts, changing the rules. And so all of these economists and market historians look at this and say, okay, well, this is happening, so this should do well. Well, no, wait a minute. 
the Fed came in and brought rates to zero. And now they're you know buying bonds at a rate of 150 bazillion dollars a month. So things change. And so we get these down 35% in February and March of last year, and we get an immediate snapback because the Fed has kind of come in and changed things. It's probably for the best, though. It's like I wouldn't want to see a prolonged downturn just so we could say that trend following worked. Right. That's not good. Yeah. <laughs> so it's because the same people will cry that the Fed changed the rules when they can't buy their distressed debt or, or value stocks because it never washed out enough. So you can lump in trend followers in tears for the same reason. It's like the Fed ruined, ruined the playbook. Yeah. And it's like, well... You know, I just think you have to understand, like, when you do trend following, I think I think you're hedging, like, the prolonged downturn. And so right. if you know that, then you have to expect that in the portfolio. And you have to expect that to hedge against the long, the prolonged downturn, the premium is getting whipsawed out of the market and underperforming for a decade when there isn't one. Yeah. And if you aren't willing to be different and to be behind the market because you're doing something like that, then you shouldn't do it because it's not an alpha strategy. It only looks like one right after you get like right after 0809. It was like, wow, you can outperform with lower volatility by doing trend following. And I'm not sure I would expect to outperform. I think you can lower the volatility, which right. is also going to lower the expected return, which right. means you're going to lag, especially at a bull market. Yeah. So that's I just think that sometimes People who are into it tout it as like the cure-all, like you can just... Oh, yeah, just just flip the switch. Yeah, so I guess that that's the takeaway is that like there are no permanent signals. No. That just if this, do that because things change over time. So the things that tell us when things happen are going to have to change and evolve over time as well. One thing that I uh, also took away from the, the podcast was... We've always seemed to have had an over-dependence here in the U.S. on U.S. stocks and U.S. large cap in particular. And to the detriment, I think, of, you know, if you were just an S&P investor for that period from 2000 to 2009, you, you had several years where you took it on the chin. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the very same time, there were emerging markets and foreign markets that did well. I mean, relatively speaking. Uh, and I think a lot of investors in the United States just don't even consider investing outside our borders. And I, I think that's probably a fault. I mean, you and I have, have shared notes on some of these things where, hey, look, look at emerging markets. They've done just as well at different periods over the years. I wonder if that's specific to just the United States or to everyone's home country. Well, the point he brought up, he's like, hey, if you're Canadian and you want to have your, you know, your home bias, then you're buying the junior minor stocks and cannabis stocks. Yeah. I don't know if that's really a good barbell. The, as US, he put it. the U.S. is definitely it's it's different than some of these other nations. And uh, I think everybody does display the bias from what I've seen. But like. The U.S. is such a mature and developed market that like we have you can get exposure to virtually every industry without having to invest outside the U.S. So I think that exacerbates people's desire to invest in what they know and what they're familiar with. But, yeah, I mean, that just that decade, for instance, you could have owned virtually everything except 
U.S. large cap and and gotten a better return, meaning like small caps, you sure. could have owned value stocks, yep. you could have owned international stocks. But then for the 10 years after that, you were you wrong. Been the you wanted, it's been the exact opposite. Totally wrong. But over yeah. the 20-year period, if you owned all of those things, you've probably taken a smoother path to get to the exact same place, which is the reason we do all of that. Yeah. But it's maddening in between. Like I'm not I'm not going to dispute that it it stinks that that when you have things in your portfolio that aren't keeping up uh, or or are being a detriment to returns. Like that stinks. I mm. I don't like it either, but mm. there you know, it's it's just part of what it comes with because absent like the timing signal that tells you when to flip from one to the other all in all out, then uh, I I don't know what else you're really supposed to do. Is it the guys at Alpha Architect that say no pain, no premium? Yeah, <laughs> I believe it is. And I think that that is very true. Yeah. That's going to wrap up the Maluli Asset Podcast, episode 374. We hope you gleaned some good insights about our thought process when we're making investing decisions and the things that we're, the different things that we're thinking about. Thanks as always for listening, and we'll see you on episode 375. Tom Maluli is an investment advisor representative with Maluli Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Tom and his podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Maluli Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Maluli Asset Management may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast.